We got three listener questions today, one about the adoration of the sacrament, another about how to deal with friends who think that theology is not important, and a third, which we talked about, fourth, and our first, I can't, oh yeah, does Jesus have COVID-19? What a wild, imaginative question for us to press through and think about the nature of the incarnation and the gifts that the Lord Jesus has for us. So thanks for downloading this podcast of Cross Defense. Thanks for being part of the fun. Here's the show. Right. Hey, welcome to Cross Defense. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. God be praised for his mercy towards us in Christ that comes to us every day according to his word, in his kindness, with his love, through the scriptures. Now, this is what we do here on Cross Defense. We want to dig into the theology and to try to recoup the joy of the wonder of it, the best, the best words in the history of words, are the words that God himself spoke to us, and we have them in the Bible. God be praised. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmere, pastor of, of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. Glad to be with you today. We got some email, and this is, I think, what we're going to do today. I got three emails. We got three segments. Oh, let's see how this goes. Um, we got one about the the Lutheran practice of adoring the sacraments. That'd be fun to talk about. We got another one about dealing with evangelicals who don't like to who don't like to dig into doctrine. Doctrine divides, love unites. And then this interesting question about could Jesus get the COVID nineteen virus? I, I let's start with that one. This comes from don't you can use the email but don't use my name. Let's see if I know where this comes. I don't. Even, I think it comes from the United States. The message says this: Nothing too awesome here, but in this time of COVID, these two questions have come to mind. Number one: Since sickness is a result of original sin, did Jesus ever get sick while he was on the earth? And number two: Would Jesus wear a mask if he were living in the United States right now? Why or why not? I enjoy listening to your sermons and podcasts. Um, not sure you'll hear the. Uh, I'll hear you address this in the public realm. Could you respond? So I'll try to send a link to this back to you. So thanks for this question. It's a fa fascinating question, isn't it? Could Jesus? Did Jesus ever get sick? Could Jesus get sick? And would Jesus wear a mask? It's fantastic. Now let's just kind of work our way into this. Now, number one, we don't know this. I mean, we just don't know. The Bible never tells us that that Jesus and his disciples went into the wilderness because Jesus had a cold, and so he needed time to recoup and rest so so we so we're going to so we got to use our theological imagination but that's going to press us in a couple of interesting directions because number 1 we remember that in his state of humiliation Jesus was in fact human and he experienced the fullness of all of those marks of our of our humble human life Jesus after all was tired he slept. Remember, he was when the when there was a storm in the boat. Jesus was sleep, sleeping, and so he was so sleepy that he was sleeping through the storm. And the disciples had to come and wake him up. Are, are you? We're all dying here, and you're asleep. Wake up! Or Jesus was thirsty. And remember that he was he was resting by the well in Samaria when the woman came and drew water, and Jesus asked for the water or from the 
cross, Jesus even says, I thirst. So that those, those normal uh, sort of hu human experiences of lacking sleep and lacking food, Jesus, Jesus had those experiences. In fact, not only do we say that Jesus was human, but that Jesus was mortal. Now, and this is the whole point, right? We know Jesus is mortal because he died. <laughs> I mean, it just it he he was killable. This is an amazing sort of thing to think about that the son of God was killable. And 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 imagine this. I mean, remember when Jesus was a baby and the angel comes and warns Joseph to to flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod was going to kill all the babies. And, and and just this is kind of one of these mind-blowing things to think about is that that means that Jesus could have been killed. If the soldiers would have found the baby Jesus and they would have taken the sword and run it through his body, that it would have gone through his body just like the spear went through his body on the cross, just like the nails went through his hands on the cross, that there was a real danger to Jesus. Now it's it's mind blowing because it gets into this into all these questions about the will of God and the sovereignty of God. I mean, would God have let Jesus be killed? No, he was he was safe. He was being protected, so that he had to come to his thirty third year. He had to come to his baptism. He had to come to his crucifixion. It had to happen. It was necessary according to the will of God. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was like a Superman. You know these Superman movies? I saw some Superman movie one time where Superman was shot in the eye and the bullet, like, flattened on his eye. I think that was a Superman or the Matrix or one of those kind of movies. I, I don't know. I just remember seeing that picture. The Man of Steel. Jesus was not like Superman. If, if Herod's soldiers would have found baby Jesus and would have taken this, it wouldn't have bent the sword. So that the so that the way that God the Father kept Jesus safe was by removing him from the danger of the soldiers. Now just, I mean, it's good for us to let our minds sit on that drama for a little bit. That Jesus was mortal. That Jesus was killable. That Jesus could be destroyed and he was so that we if we think to ourselves well if surely then if the sword if the spear could pierce Jesus lungs well then so could seasonal allergies <laughs> I mean so could coronavirus he had a body like ours with all the weaknesses of our body. Now, but then but then the second thing that we start to think is but but Jesus had power to heal. I mean every time he sees someone who's sick he heals them. So here's some and, and, and so so even you know we we're looking at Matthew 8 and I want to dig into Matthew 8 in just a little bit because this is I think a key text for this. But Pete, Jesus is in Capernaum and he goes to visit the house of Peter's mother-in-law who was on the bed sick with a fever and Jesus comes and he heals her. 
so that Jesus would heal the man with leprosy. He would heal the, uh, the, the paralytic. He would heal the person who was lame. He would heal the blind. He would heal the deaf. He would heal the mute. He would cast demons out of people. So he, would, he was like a walking hospital. He was so, and we think of it that he, like he's so healthy that he sort of expands health in every different direction. So that maybe if Jesus got a sore throat, he would just lay hands on his own throat and <laughs> send it away. But, but we see that, that Jesus never, never used his divine power for himself. It's one of the marks of our Lord that is one of the reasons why we adore him so much, is that while he could have blessed himself with his own strength or his own power, his own divine na nature, he, di he simply didn't. So that the devil finds Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, fasting from food and water, and he says, turn the, bread into, turn the rocks into bread, and Jesus doesn't. He doesn't do it. Because he's not here to serve himself. He's not here to bless himself. He, do he doesn't use his divine power for himself. So maybe Jesus could have gotten sick and he would have just endured it because that's part of his own humanity. But there's one more thing that happens. I forgot to open my Bible to Matthew chapter 8 and this is what I want to look at. Now we remember that, that Matthew, this is an amazing text, that Matthew kind of divides up his gospel. You have an introduction and a conclusion, and then you have sort of five, well, there's ten sections, five sermons and five series of activities. So the first sermon that we have in Matthew is Matthew 5, 6, 7. That's a Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, chapters 8 and 9, I'm just looking here, 8, 9, and 10 will recount the deeds of Jesus, his miracles, and so forth. And one of the first things that happens when Jesus finishes preaching the Sermon on the Mount, is that a man, a leper, comes to him. I'll, I'll just read some, some words here. Matthew 8, uh, starting with the first verse. When he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now remember leprosy. Oh, man. It was a mess, leprosy. I mean, you had to... There was all these laws from Moses. So you had to be in quarantine. If you want a picture of quarantine in the ancient world, you have it in leprosy. You had to leave town. You couldn't touch anybody. It wasn't just a mask and six feet, but you, if anybody came close to you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that they would avoid you. But look here. Here this leper comes, and he, sa he doesn't say to Jesus, unclean. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then look what happens. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately it's gone. Immediately he's healed. But the key thing that we don't want to miss there is that the man reached out and touched Jesus, which made Jesus unclean. If you touched a dead body, you're unclean. If you touched someone with leprosy, you were unclean. You, and you might not have gotten leprosy yourself, but you were considered to be unclean by the law, according to Moses. And so Jesus, when he touches this man, he becomes unclean. And if we were, if we were going to read that and miss the point, Matthew has hammered it home for us a few verses later by quoting Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is a very important passage in, in the understanding of the redemption that the Lord Jesus gives to us. I mean... Isaiah 53 is the Good Friday text. 
Isaiah 53 is, it tells us that he was stricken by God and smitten, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was afflicted for our iniquities, uh, that by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and yet he opened not his mouth, and his grave was made with the wicked. And the, and the rich in his death and so forth. Isaiah 53 is the, it's like the beating heart of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 gives us the, uh, it's one of the chief places where we get our theology of the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus was in our place, that, that our sins are on Jesus and God's wrath for our sins, it, uh, th that's on Jesus so that it's not on us, that he's taking our place there so that the Lord can bless us. It's a beautiful text. In fact, I, I think that, that sometimes Isaiah is called the fifth gospel, and I and rightly so, because this this prophecy, especially Isaiah 53, unfolds so beautifully, so beautifully, not only the work that Jesus does, but the effect of the work of Jesus, the result of it. It's great. But listen to how Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 here. Starting in chapter 8, verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he would cast out spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side, and so forth and so on. He, he did, you, did you get it? He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The picture is that when Jesus is healing the leprous man, he's, he's grabbing a hold of his leprosy, and he's not just sending it away. He's, he's taking it on himself. He's, he's grabbing a hold of the sicknesses. He's grabbing a hold of the troubles. Now, we rightly and gloriously think of that when it comes to our sins, that Jesus is grabbing a hold of our sins and 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 taking our sins and suffering for them rightly so that's how we should think of him he that he's the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he he piles them up it's all on him it's all on his shoulders but it's not just according to this text it's not just our our sins that he takes it's not just our sins that he bears but it's also our sicknesses and it's our our infirmities our weaknesses and our troubles all all of them so that Jesus takes all of the things that, are, that we suffer, all the things that are wrong with us in this world, all the things that we've done wrong, all the things that have been done wrong to us, all of that he bears and more. All the weaknesses, all the sicknesses, all the afflictions, all the diseases, all of it, all the temptation, he carries, he bears, he takes to himself. Now, I don't think this means that we should see Jesus when he touches the leper now having leprosy, but in a, in a real way in, spirit, in the spiritual economy of things, that Jesus takes that uncleanness, uncleanness. He takes it himself. So that Jesus takes 
your cancer and your diabetes and your paralysis and your blindness and your Alzheimer's and your flu and your COVID, Jesus bears it. And in a very real way, this is the priesthood of Jesus. This is why he's such a good high priest, because he has this sympathy with us, this suffering with us. So that in a very real way, we can say that, in fact, Jesus does have, does have COVID. That he wouldn't back to the, that he wouldn't wear a mask because he, that was his business. Is to become infected with the things that, trouble us so that he can take him away from us and give us the hope of the resurrection. <laughs> it's wonderful. At least my thoughts on it. Thank you for this question. Would Jesus wear a mask if he were living in the U.S.? <laughs> God be praised. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Uh, glad to have you with me on this Monday afternoon as we explore the Lord's Word and the theology. We'll have a quick break, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 715 for Orazio your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Cross Events. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas, and answering of your questions today. We just were talking about, could Jesus get COVID? <laughs> what a great question. Here's another one from Lorenzo who says, 
feel free to use my name. Writing from Italy, dear Reverend Wolfmuller. Um, let's see. Feel free to. I have another question. I live in Italy, a country where most of the non-Roman Catholic Christians are part of a mainstream evangelical churches, Baptist Pentecostal brethren, while confessional Lutherans are sparingly few, probably less than 10 in the entire country. We need to evangelize Rome, by the way. Let's go, Lutherans. I have lots of good, uh, good time of fellowship with many brothers and sisters from various backgrounds. We often pray together, share, share meals, etc. They aren't too bothered by my Lutheran ideas. However, one thing there's a stark contrast on is the importance of doctrine. Ha, 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 yes. They have a can't-we-all-get-along approach, which makes it hard for me to explain why doctrinal issues on the sacraments, the atonement, predestination, etc. are far from ancillary. My question, therefore, is how can I clarify that doctrines like those, talking about sacraments, atonement, predestination, how can I clarify that doctrine like those are fundamental and that I can't just be dismissive, I can't just be dismissed as divisive without, without actually becoming snarky and irreverent? Grace and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lorenzo. Well, thank you. This is a, just a fantastic... Fantastic question, Lorenzo. So it's a que it, it, There's so much that goes into this question, but let's okay. So let's work into this too. First, we, I think always we want to say, okay, what does the Bible say about the idea, and then what's the objection, and then how do we respond to the objection? That's kind of our three-fold approach. So, so what does the Bible say about 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 the importance of doctrine? Number one, the I think maybe the key text is this: when Jesus says, "Okay, disciples, now I'm sending you. Here's what I want you to do: go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to, to obey, to treasure, to keep all that I have commanded you and look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus says that we are to be taught everything that he commanded. So that Jesus has not said, okay, okay, you can pick the words that I said that you like and then and then throw away the words that you don't like. He never, that's not, but Jesus said, in fact, pretty much the opposite of that. He said, every single word that proceeds from the mouth of God is our life. That's what Jesus said to the devil you saw, uh, when, he, when he was tempted to create bread. Every man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that marches out of the mouth of God. In fact, on the negative side, Jesus is constantly warning us to beware of false prophets. In fact, and I, I, I found this, I, apparently I wrote an article back in 2007 which seems like a long time ago. I mean, I can't even remember, like, 2017. But I wrote some article called The Most Dangerous Thing in the World, in which, the, and, and so I just reposted it on the blog, wolfmuller.co, you'll find it up there, in which I outline how every time the New Testament uses the word beware, it is, it is warning us, it is bewaring us of false teachers. What do you got to look out for? Jesus says, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus said to them, Matthew 16, 6, Watch and beware of the Pharisee, of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what's that leaven? They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or just consider, for example, St. Paul, Philippians 2, 3, verse 2. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware the mutilation 
or Colossians 2. Beware that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or Peter, who says, 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things beforehand, beware that you also, being led astray with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So that we're told to be constantly in the scriptures, we're told to look out, to beware, to... Sorry, my... My beard is finally caught up to my nose. I can't stop scratching it. This is like the Lord has answered Carrie's prayers, by the way, that I would get annoyed with my beard and shave it off. It's, it's getting close. The point is, every time the Bible talks about being where, it's talking about being where of false teachers. Now, there's an old idea. There's an old sort of strain of thought that, that runs through the church and shows up here and there. In fact, it shows up all over the place. And it goes like this. It says, doctrine divides. As if that's a surprise. Doctrine divides. And a lot of times when people who are want to be careful with their theology or talking to people who don't want to be careful with their theology, that will be the assertion that's made. Doctrine divides. Now, what we should say to that is, right, that's what doctrine is supposed to do. Doctrine is divisive. Every time God speaks, he's making a distinction between what is true and what is false. So that every assertion of truth, every, every assertion of something from right and wrong is a division that the Lord is making. So that so that when when someone says that doctrine divides, we should say, right, that's and that's what it's supposed to do. But that division is painful. And we should be sympathetic to the pain of the division of doctrine. So 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 remember, and we should maybe in two different ways. Number one, we we feel the pain of the division of doctrine as humans and, and also as Christians. As humans, we reflect just when Jesus says, I came to bring not peace but a sword to divide families, children from parents and so forth. And so Even in the middle of houses, there'll be divisions, and we, and we feel the pain of that. We know we as human beings should know the pain of being divided in ideas one from another. I mean, it happens, it's not just with theology. It's with everything. It's you, when you have political debates, there's pain. In families who can't agree on politics, for example, there's pain from when, when people can't agree. I mean, whatever there is, when there's disagreement, there's pain. And so as human beings, we know the pain of the division of doctrines, but we, we even more know the pain of it as Christians. Jesus prays in John 17 that we may be one, even as he and the Father are one, so that Jesus has this desire for the church to be united in the truth. I remember this was an amazing uh, moment in my own life. I was at a symposium at the seminary. So every year, the every year the uh, the seminary in Fort Wayne would host a symposium, and so theologians would come in, and professors would give papers and so forth. And this is there was so the and there was two theologians who were who were alive who are now or are not uh, Richard John Newhart uh, Newhouse and uh, Dr. Marquardt Kurt Marquardt. And the topic was the unity of the church. And I remember that those two were at seminary together. They knew each other before Newhouse went and became Catholic. But 
he was back, giving a paper. And so those two were standing near each other. Maybe they were having a conversation. And I came up and I was, and I asked him a question. Now, this is a, I, I had no idea what a kind of profound moment. I mean, these are two huge theologians, Newhouse and Marquardt. And I came up and I asked them a question. How is the church one? And Newhouse gave this maybe somewhat rambling answer about the church simply finds herself as one. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it was more profound than that, but I didn't. And he, but he kind of went on for a little while. It was elegant, but I didn't know exactly what he was talking about. And then Dr. Marquardt just says, the unity of the church is the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. <laughs> I mean, he just sort of cut through everything. That's how Dr. Marquardt was, cut through everything. You, if you haven't, if you never got to meet Dr. Marquardt, that'll be one of the joys that you'll have in the resurrection, meeting him. What a beautiful, beautiful man. I just, so the word, the, the, it's the word of God that, you, that, that unites the church, that makes the church one. And Jesus prayed for that in John 17. And when we see the divisions in the church, over this fighting over doctrine, we should also be pained by it. It should hurt us. We should realize that when Christians who are baptized in the same name, who are called to trust the same gospel, who have the same book, who want to, who want to stand on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, and we can't agree on the truth of things, that this should pain us. It should bring a true pain to us. But what is the solution to that pain? Now, the church for a long time has said, well, if there's pain in doctrinal division, then the best way to avoid the pain is to avoid doctrine. It's, it's what we call, or what we used to call in the old days, doctrinal indifferentism which is a mouthful, I guess, but it's probably language that we should bring back, doctrinal indifferentism. And there's two different ways to be doctrinally indifferent. you got the liberal tact, which is to say, basically, there's divisions, but they don't matter. There's doctrines, but they don't matter. It's just, I mean, in my mind, the liberal approach to doctrinal indifferentism is just to stop caring about doctrine. So we can, we can have all these agreements with church unity, and we, we, don't, we don't agree on stuff, but we just kind of get together. But there is an evangelical approach, which is slightly different, although it comes from the same sort of, it's cut from the same cloth. And that is this idea of we have to emphasize deeds over creeds, works over words, mission over belief. This is the Rick Warren approach. I mean, Rick Warren said that. We're about deeds, not creeds. Imagine, deeds, not creeds. And something happened in the church when they went... We went in the church from having belief statements to mission statements. Now, what's the difference? Just, I mean, think about that. If your church has a mission statement but no belief statement, or if your church emphasizes the mission statement over the belief statement, what is it emphasizing? Our belief statement is what God has done. It's who God is. Our mission statement is what we are doing. And so it's the switch from faith to love, from what God has done to what we are supposed to be doing. It's the switch from from gospel to law, or at least potential gospel to certain law. And you could have a mission, you could have a belief statement that's wrong too. So, just because you have a belief statement and not a mission statement isn't good. You got to have a belief statement in the right stuff. But you see the point. Now, this all comes under in the evangelical church under this slogan, which is in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. At least I think that's what the slogan is, but I always forget it. So someone correct me if that's wrong. And there is some truth to it. Paul will warn when he writes to Timothy, when he writes to Titus, 
he'll he'll he will warn them about the babblers about the false teachers or the 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 teachers who make a lot out of nothing who fight over words the logomachi that they just sit there and they they just they live to argue about genealogies and mythologies and all this sort of stuff that the, the the preacher of the gospel the christian mind should not should not be divisive over the small minutia but paul Saint Paul certainly knew what it was to pick a theological fight. I mean, remember what he says in Galatians. When he says uh when he says if anyone comes and preaches a different gospel, if any, even an angel from heaven, even if I come back and I say something different, then let me be anathema. Theologically rejected completely. Cast me out. In fact, the more we look at St. Paul, the more we realize that the reason why he wrote what he wrote was because there was false doctrine that needed to be corrected. In fact, in fact, not only is that true of St. Paul, but it's true of St. Peter, James, John. It's true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. It's true of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. It's true of the books of Moses and the histories. In fact, if you just said, and maybe this for uh, Lorenzo, this is kind of one of the first questions that we want to ask is, if you say, okay, let's just take out of the Bible all of the books that are there because they're dealing with the problem of false doctrine, what books would you have left? The occasion of the writing down of the scriptures was false doctrine in the church that needed to be corrected. Now, now back to perhaps Lorenzo's problem. So, the, so that's what the scripture says about these things. But, but how does the objection come to us? And here's where this needs some kind of careful thought. Because this idea of deeds, not creeds, this idea of doctrine divides but love unites this idea has a, a humble look to it it's a false humility to be sure but it it looks like humility it says we want love to prevail we want Christian unity to prevail we want to get along with each other and you Christians who are so obsessed with doctrine and truth and all this theological minutiae, you come along and you mess that up. Now, now that, that kind of way of thinking is tricky. Number one, because it looks humble even though it's not. In fact, it's a, it's, there's, a, there's an incessant pridefulness there because it says that everything is an opinion. There's no such thing as truth. Nothing is from God. It denies the clarity of the scriptures, at least where there's disagreements. In other words, it says, if we agree about it, it must be true. But if we disagree about it, it can't be from God. But it's hidden. And a lot of times the people who hold these, the, the, this assertion, the people who come to us with these ideas, they don't even recognize the, the sort of intellectual pride that is going on in their own minds. In other words, if you come along and you say, hey, this is true, it's understood to be an act of, of pride to, to be certain that something is true. Well, what's the opposite? That means that uncertainty is humility. G.K. Chesterton was 
had a genius statement about this. He says, this is all reversed. We were meant to be unsure of ourselves and true and sure of God, but the opposite has happened. We're unsure about what God said and pretty sure about all the things that we think. It's, it's humility misplaced, he called it. But it's often not seen. And, and here's the tricky thing that it comes to us. It's what the old debate, uh, the old debate coaches used to call a double blind. If you could set someone up, if you could make an assertion in such a way that someone simply can't get out of it, then you've trapped them. And this, and this uh, idea that, that being concerned with doctrine is loveless is a double blind. In other words, how do I respond to it? If I argue with them, then I prove them right. If I say, no, no, you can't say that, they say, see, you're being divisive. But if I don't say anything, then I'm also proving them right. So it comes to us as a trap, as a theological trap. Now, how do we respond to it? Number one, we remember that doctrine is salvation. First Timothy 4, give attention to the teaching. In doing so, you will save yourselves and those who hear you. You speak the truth in love. We want to remember, someone sent me an email today and said that I said something that they really liked, and I cannot remember saying it. So I'm going to quote myself, but it's okay because I don't remember saying it. <laughs> and that is that theology is the love language of God. How God speaks his love to us is theologically. And then the second thing I think we can do is go to the places where, where the doctrine shows up in practice. The easiest place is baptism. I say, well, look, if, baptism do, if, if theology doesn't matter, then let's just baptize the babies. And that will get them to rise to the bait. And then you can have a real theology discussion. So press to those places where the theology shows up. And maybe third, keep in mind that Jesus loves. Jesus loves the people that you're arguing with and that you're fighting with. He just delights in them. He cares for them. He forgives them. He's patient with them. And so we should be patient with them too. That at least is my answer to the question. How can I clarify that doctrine like these are fundamental and, and can't just be dismissed as divisive? without becoming snarky and irreverent. Thank you, Lorenzo, for the question. I hope that helps. Hey, you're listening to Cross Defense. It's time for another break. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas, coming back, and we'll talk about the Lutheran idea of adoration of the sacraments. Do, do, do the Lutherans do that? And if we have enough time, I saw Chris ask a question about patience in time of pandemic. We'll talk about that as well. Thanks for being part of the, sh the fun here. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. This week on Issues Etc., we'll begin a Studies in Acts series with Dr. Ken Sherb. We'll talk with Pastor Heath Curtis about the financial impact of the coronavirus on churches. We'll discuss answering objections to the resurrection with Dr. Adam Francisco. And we'll have Pastor Will Whedon lead us in a teaching on kindness in the Bible. 
Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. If you like cross-defense, then there's a chance you're going to like this book that I wrote, which is called And Take They Our Life, Martin Luther's Theology of the Martyrs. You know, we, when we talk about the church and the history of the church and these martyrs, we think, boy, oh boy, these people who suffered for the faith, we, the more we think about them, the more frightful it is. But the opposite is what really happens. The Lord uses them to give us courage and give us comfort and peace. So, so Luther knew it, and I try to capture some of that wisdom from Luther in this little book. If you go to wolfmuller.co slash life, you can order the book from Amazon or on Kindle or download it for free. I just want you to have the stuff. Hopefully it's encouraging and, and, and something that you and your family can rejoice in. So wolfmuller.co slash life and take they are life, Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom. Welcome back to CrossFits. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I remember that part. Pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches in right here in Austin, Texas. God be praised also for that. And uh, thanks for these. I'm reading questions today. This is a lot of fun. If you want to send questions or feedback or anything else, else like that, the way to do it is wolfmuller.co slash contact, I think, or there's a contact button somewhere on the website. That's great. Uh, and you can send me these questions. And I get to like one out of a hundred. I'm sorry that it's so few, but these are really good. Um I got a, uh, what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, on the website we do Wednesday Whatnot sometimes, which is means a free weekly newsletter with various different stuff that I'm kind of interested in or thinking about or seeing or reading. And I recently have figured out that I can copy and paste from my tablet on Kindle onto the Twitter. So if you are on the Twitter and you, and you want to just have a little dose of theology coming through your Twitter feed, you can connect to me that way. That's also uh, that's also kind of cool. Uh, there's one other thing. Oh, yes. Regarding that article about the most dangerous thing in the world, we also posted that on the website, wolfmuller.co. Uh, I, I just whatever the name is, you can just look. It should be right there by the top, or you can search for doctrine or theology or something. Picture of a wolf, and that'll have all those texts and a few words about it. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay, last, uh, uh, next question. This is from Clay, who writes... I've been enjoying your video series. Confessional Lutherans seem to have a deep regard for the Eucharist. Is it common among such Lutherans to participate in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament? It, uh, is this question a matter of controversy? Well, thank you, Clay, for the thank you, Clay, for the question here. The uh, I, by the way, I think this is really interesting. Is that um, one of the things that's happened in the last few weeks since we've been putting our services online? So. We've been recording services, matin service, so not a divine service, like a matin service or evening prayer or whatever, here at St. Paul Lutheran Church and posting them up on the St. Paul um, webpage. But what, there's something that happened, and that is that before that on YouTube, I got the YouTube thing happening, and uh, there's all these Roman Catholic trolls who were all over the YouTube page talking about how Lutherans don't have the supper and we don't have the right office and everything, and they still are doing that kind of thing, but they saw the they saw the liturgy, and they saw me investments at the altar and candles and everything, and they're like, wow, you Lutherans have kept a lot of the Catholic stuff, to which I, sh I wanted to respond, well, you guys have kept a lot of the Lutheran stuff, but I actually responded, thank you. But it's interesting. I think it's very interesting to, if you were just to ask a Catholic what they imagined happened inside the Lutheran churches, in their imagination, it's probably a lot like a Pentecostal service. And then they come and they're like, whoa. In fact, 
it's one of the it's one of the problems is that when someone like from an evangelical church or from a Baptist church comes and visits the Lutheran church and they're like, well, your guys are just like the Catholics. Well, I mean, we say the creeds and we have the liturgy. Ah, uh, you remember how we got kicked out of the Catholic Church? Remember how we got anathematized by Trent and everything? I mean, we're not. Anyway, I guess it looks the outward looks a lot to people. And one of the marks is that we have a high, high regard for the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. In fact, the the Lutherans maintained the elevation. So after the words of institution are spoken, uh, the, the, the words taken from the Gospels uh, of Jesus from the last, uh, from the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks. He said, take and eat, this is my body. When the, those words are spoken, after they're spoken, that the pastor will take the chalice and the, and the host, the bread, so the body and the blood, and hold it up before the people and, and say the Pax, the peace of the Lord be with you always. It's held up. Uh, in fact, some Lutheran pastors, including myself, this is one of the changes that I, I've brought to the, uh, the churches where I've come, is that after I speak the words of institution, after I speak the words consecrating the bread, and now the Lord's body is there, and likewise with the wine and the Lord's blood is there, I'll genuflect, I'll kneel as an act of reverence and adoration to Jesus who is present according to his body and his blood for us to eat and drink. And so uh, and so it is a practice that seems really quite something. In fact, the, the, the Lutheran Church have... The Lutherans traditionally have a very high reverence for the true body and blood in the supper, evidenced by the fact that most of the time, the way the Lord's body and blood is distributed in the Lutheran church is to people who are kneeling. So you come up and you kneel and you receive it that way. Uh, it is a, it's a big question about how the Lord's body and blood is received in the Catholic church. And again, I'm no expert on this, and there's probably some controversy, but a lot of times in the Catholic church, you'll just do the drive-by. You'll just walk by and receive. Now, it's still the body and blood and so forth, but how you, the posture of your body is a confession of what's going on there. And the Lutherans will kneel to receive the body and the blood. So in one way, the Lutheran church has kept the adoration of the of the Eucharist, the adoration, we should say it like this, the adoration of the of Jesus, who is present according to his body and his blood. But in another very profound way, the Lutherans have rejected that, the the practice of Eucharistic adoration. One of the, the Catholic Church has this, you know, they will take the consecrated host and reserve it in the tabernacle and put it there on the altar, and you have the fancy stuff, and they'll light a candle to indicate that the consecrated host is there, and then the practice is to come and, and be before the consecrated host and to pray certain prayers and meditate and so forth and adore the consecrated host. Lutherans do not do that. In fact, they looked at that practice and they said, no, uh, we, do, we, we do not think that that is a valid practice at all. And why? I want to read you, uh, because the, and whenever you're asking a question about the Lord's Supper, the Lutherans are always pressing straight back to the words of Jesus, straight back to the words of institution. And I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs, I think, if we have time, from the Formula of Concord. Now, what is that? If you remember that the, uh, the Lutherans were always being asked, what, what is it that you guys believe? And so they were writing down the things that they believed. And so the big one was the Augsburg Confession, 1530. You got the catechisms, large and small. You have the small called articles, which was written in preparation for a council that never happened. And 
Luther died, and there was a bunch of fights that broke out over theology in the Lutheran Church. And so to settle those, the, the theologians got together, and they they wrote what's called the Formula of Concord, this Formula of Unity, that takes up a number of these questions. And in that, Article 7 talks about the Lord's Supper. Now, it might be maybe not surprising for students of, of, uh, of church history to consider that the Lord's Supper was one of the biggest fights that was happening, because it was happening on two fronts. The Lutherans were fighting the Catholic Church on this side and the and the the Sacramentarians and the Zwinglians and the others on the Reformed on that side. So it was, a, it was a battle on two sides. They were punching in two different directions. And in fact, because of that, Luther wrote more about the Lord's Supper than any other topic that he ever wrote about. I mean, that was a that was a huge part of his life and his his debates. I was reading um oh, this glorious book, J. Gresham Macon. Machen, 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 about uh, Christianity and liberalism, written in 1922. It's a classic book, It's and it is glorious. But he starts talking about how uh, Luther was just wrong about the Lord's Supper. This He's a Presbyterian, Macon is, I think, and a Princeton guy, and so he has to say that Luther's wrong about that. Although he does say, he he does, he's grateful that Luther didn't, still cared so he says it would have been wrong for Luther to say, well, we're to Zwingli, well, we disagree, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's good that Luther stood at fight, so at least he has appreciation for him. But this is always the claim is that Luther didn't go far enough. Well, he had plenty of opportunity. I mean, everybody had their hooks in Luther, and they were trying to drag him over to the Reformed camp, to the Sacramentarian camp, and he simply wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it because of the words, this is my body. In fact, that was one of his most famous treatises that these words, this is my body, still stand true against the fanatics. And from Luther, and it's kind of a simple theological point, but from Luther it always goes back to what does Jesus say? So let me read, the, this is answering, what, am I, what question am I answering? Oh yeah, the Lutherans and the adoration of the sacrament. It says, let us come to the second point, which little mention has been made, to preserve this true Christian doctrine concerning the Holy Supper, and to avoid and abolish manifold idolatrous abuses and perversions of this New Testament. The following useful rule and standard has been derived from the words of institution. It has a little Latin here, which is translated, Nothing has the nature of a sacrament apart from the use instituted by Christ. I, I mean, I know that's what it says in because it, it has the English next to it, so I'm not translating one time I translated some Latin. In fact, <laughs> Mark Taylor, Pastor Mark Taylor, God bless Mark Taylor. What a great man. He, you know, When I was on Vicarage, he tried to teach me Latin, and uh, it didn't work. So one day, a few years later, I found Luther's introduction to Psalm 22, which had never been translated in English, at least that we could find. And so it was in Latin, and so I translated it, and I sent Mark. I said, hey, could you just look over my translation? And he wrote back, and he says, the proper translation is attached. Never translate Latin again. So, just being obedient to my teacher. Uh, so, but the rule, oh, but this is the point. The rule here is that nothing has the nature of a sacrament apart from the use instituted by Christ. And then second, that it is not the sacrament apart from the action divinely instituted. If the institution of Christ be not observed as he appointed it, then there is no sacrament. This rule is by no means to be rejected and can and should be urged and maintained with profit to the church of God. 
And the use or the action appointed by Jesus here does not mean chiefly faith that we believe or simply the oral participation, but the entire external visible action of the Lord's Supper instituted by Christ. The consecration, the words of institution, the distribution, the reception, the oral partaking, the manducation and the, of the consecrated bread and wine and the partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Apart from this use, when in the papistic mass the bread is not distributed but offered up or enclosed or borne about and exhibited for adoration is to be regarded as no sacrament, just as the water of baptism was used to consecrate bells or to cure leprosy or otherwise exhibit for worship is not the sacrament or baptism. Against such papistic abuses, the rule has been set up from the beginning of the reviving the gospel and has been explained by Dr. Luther himself. Now what's interesting, and so to kind of wind down on this point, is to say that what did Jesus say? Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. Jesus said, take and drink. This is the blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so the use for which Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper is not, an, is not adoration, but it is rather the eating and drinking and believing. It's really, really quite wonderful. So that the Lutheran Church rejects the practice of the, like the, the alone adoration of the sacrament. And we understand that adoration is simply the recognition of faith, that this is in fact the true body and blood of Jesus according to his word that's being given to us for the forgiveness of all of our sins. So that the adoration is connected to the eating and to the drinking, never disconnected, always connected to the eating and drinking and to the believing of the promise. That's how we, that's how we take it. Uh, there's more here. This is, again, Solid Declaration uh, Article 7, I read paragraphs 85 to 86. It goes on to talk about, here. One, well, nah, I don't, I'm going to run out of time. Yeah. So you gotta, your homework is to go and uh, study that yourself. So I hope, uh, I hope, Clay, that this is helpful for you and that you, we want to have the highest view of the Lord's Supper, but the view that accords with the words which Jesus gave. Well, fantastic. Thanks again for the questions today. Uh, this is really quite wonderful. And if you want to send me some more questions, the best way to do it is wolfmuller.co slash contact. You can send that to me there. You can sign up for the Wednesday Whatnot. That's also on the website. Keep those questions coming, and we will keep rejoicing in the Lord's Word, which gives us that. This gives us certainty. It gives us clarity. It gives us wisdom. It gives us comfort. It gives us patience, and it gives us hope as we rejoice that not only is Jesus risen from the dead and lives and reigns for all eternity, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rules all things for his church. God be praised. Have a great week. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.
thank you for being part of the podcast family here with Cross Defense. Thanks for your great questions, for engaging in this. God be praised for your love of theology, your joy in the Lord's Word. If there was something helpful here, please share this with family and friends. Hopefully it's helpful in your theological conversations uh, with them. And if you have questions, you want to submit those, you can go to the website, wolfmuller.co slash contact. Thanks again. God's peace be with you.